Hello, and welcome to the Cambridge American History Seminar Podcast. This is the final episode of Lent Term 2019 in our series of brief conversations with academics who've come to present at our weekly seminar. Thank you for listening. I'm Yasmin Dewalla, a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here at the University of Cambridge, and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor David Blight, who is a class of 1954 professor of American history at Yale University and director of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, also at Yale. Professor Blight is the author of several acclaimed books, too numerous to list, so I'll mention but a few. American Oracle, The Civil War and the Civil Rights Era, published in 2013 by Belknap Press, Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory, published by Harvard University Press in 2001, which received eight book awards, including the Bancroft Prize, the Abraham Lincoln Prize, and the Frederick Douglass Prize. Today, Professor Blight is here to discuss his latest book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, published by Simon & Schuster in 2018. This riveting biography of Frederick Douglass is a product of nearly a decade of research and writing. It has been met with much acclaim, including making the top 10 books of 2018 lists in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine. The book was also awarded the Bancroft Prize as of last week, making it the second time Professor Blight has received this honor. Grappling with the life and legacy of Frederick Douglass for Professor Blight has been a career-long pursuit. His first book, Frederick Douglass' Civil War, Keeping Faith in Jubilee, published by Louisiana State Press in 1989, analyzed the impact of the Civil War on Frederick Douglass' life and thought. Professor Blight has also written introductions to two of Douglass's reprinted autobiographies, My Bondage, My Freedom, and Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, thus making him one of the world's leading Douglass experts. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast, Professor Blight. Thank you, Yasmin. It's great to do this. Thank you. I'd like to start off by asking two questions about the man himself. What is it about Douglass that has sustained your curiosity all these years? As a man who's written three autobiographical narratives, Douglas was very careful about how he wanted to be remembered. How did you navigate writing about Douglas using his narratives without internalizing his own constructed self-image? Well, first of all, what's, what has sustained me over the years on Douglas is the words. Uh, he became, he clearly, like none of us, was born that way, but he became a genius with language. And it is Douglas in his words that uh, is the primary reason we're even here talking about him. But the autobiographies are a problem, as you just suggested. They are both uh, extremely revealing about some aspects of his life, particularly his youth as a slave. They're an indispensable source for that. But they also hide a great deal. He writes very little, almost nothing in 1,200 pages of autobiography, three full autobiographies, about his children, his family, his two wives, uh, his personal psychological standing at times, at the, at the crises in his life. Now, everyone who writes memoir, if they're any good at it at all, of course, hides a great deal. That's the craft of memoir. And in the 19th century, nobody wrote tell-all memoirs. Um, but, the, but the question of Douglass's autobiographies uh, are really twofold. One is you have to use them as a source, yeah. but you also have to treat them as a subject. Why does anybody write about himself so much? Why did he continue to write his own story over and over and over? And then in old age, he writes a third one in 1881, and then revises that again uh, about 11 years later. Um, so uh, the autobiographies are, are the first lens through which we get to know Douglas. And if the world knows Douglas at all today, whether in America or here in Europe or for that matter anywhere else, it's largely through that first narrative, which is now widely taught. Um, where he, though he was so young when he wrote that, he's only 27 when he writes that, already, yeah, I know, you're ready for your first memoir? Uh, uh, Nevertheless, he was already a skilled, manipulative writer, creating a character which was himself. And you are manipulated 
on every page of Douglas's autobiographical writing. At the same time, he does reveal a great deal. So, uh, it's the words that have always sustained me. Uh, it's, it's where you meet Douglas, and it's kind of why you stay with him. I don't know, there's, there's an epic quality to his life as well. I mean, there's a, there's a trajectory to this life when you realize He's born in 1818, before there are steamboats, mm -hmm. railroad, telegraph, rotary press, all those elements of modernity that he will seize upon and use to build his career. And he's gonna, but he's going to live all the way to 1895, you know, when they had steamships that could cross the Atlantic in eight days. And, and, you know, he lives to the age of electric light bulbs and so on and so on. And he lives through that greatest you know, crisis and pivot of American history, the Civil War, Reconstruction, the end of slavery. So there's the epic life as well. Um, but a lot of people lived extraordinary lives. Nobody wrote or spoke about the questions of slavery, race, the Civil War, Reconstruction, and all other dimensions quite like Douglas did in the 19th century. He is unique in that sense as a commentator on this, this American condition um, through his 77 years. Thank you. Um, just for the second question. So in the acknowledgments, you say this book would not have been written had it not been for the Walter O. and Linda Evans collection, which contains material pertaining to Douglas's life from Reconstruction to his death in 1895. Despite having written over 1,200 pages of autobiographical material and his three narratives, comparatively little is known about Douglas during the last third of his life. How did it feel when you discovered you might be able to address that gap? What did you hope to find out in the sources? And were there any questions that were left unanswered? Hmm. Well, you've hit upon the key. Uh, there's no doubt this, I would not have done this book. I had no intention of writing A Full Life of Douglas until I encountered Walter Evans in Savannah, Georgia, of all places, uh, about 12 years ago, on a trip. I was on a trip there to give a lecture on Douglas's narrative to secondary teachers, which I've done a lot. And the host was the uh, head of the Georgia Historical Society, who said, there's a local gentleman here. He's a collector. He'd like to meet you and have lunch. <laughs> And that day, I not only met Walter, this extraordinary man, but he took me over to his house. He showed me on his dining room table a portion of his Douglas collection, which uh, blew my mind. Now, Walter is worth explaining. He is an African-American retired surgeon <laughs> who grew up in segregated Savannah, but he went north for his higher education, and he went to the University of Michigan Medical School. Then he practiced as a general surgeon in Detroit uh, for 30-some years, made a good living. But his real passion was collecting African-American uh, rare books, manuscripts, and art. And he has one of the finest private collections of African-American art anywhere in the world, and his manuscript collection is extraordinary. He started collecting the Douglas material in the 1970s, when he started collecting other things, when it wasn't as expensive as it is now. And uh, that collection in particular is, is rooted in about 10 very large uh, family scrapbooks that were kept by Douglas's children, uh, particularly two of his sons, over especially the last third of their father's life. So, as you just suggested, that Evans collection was especially a brand new window into the older Douglas, the Douglas of the post-Civil War era, the Douglas we don't tend to know as well, and even his previous biographers didn't tend to know as well. I was not the first to ever see it, but I was the first to actually use it. And now there are several other Douglas scholars, both in the U.S. and some over here in the U.K., who have used Walter's collection, have gone to Savannah, have worked on his dining room table as I did. So I spent, once I decided to do this, and I didn't decide right away because it was daunting, um, 
you know, it's a big life, yeah. and it's, uh, you know, oh, how could I ever do this? Uh, I spent probably four or five spring breaks in Savannah and a bunch of other weeks at different times just doing research on the Evans's dining room table, uh, which is, you know, about the best archive I've ever been in. Um, <laughs> so that's the reason I did the book. And if anyone looks at the footnotes for the second half of the book, the Evans collection is all over it. It isn't just scrapbooks. It was, it is, it's also a lot of family documents, uh, even a couple of narratives, short narratives written by two of Douglas's sons. And they're called, uh, the, the title on them is Growing Up in the Douglas Household. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, those are precious, you know, to find that kind of thing. And, and just thousands of newspaper clippings from all kinds of odd, isolated newspapers that you could never find today, even with online searching. And the reason was the family, by the mid-1880s, hired a clipping service. Oh, wow. There was a clipping, I didn't even know this existed, but there was a clipping service in the 19th century called the American Bureau. And so wherever Mr. D went on his endless speaking tours, uh, in his last 10, 12 years, back came clippings from all these small towns. So it gives you not only a, a way to chart his speaking tours, uh, but it, it gives you lots of public reactions to him. It gives you texture. A biographer is always looking for texture around the story, around the person, and, you know, great anecdotes. And so that's what the Evans Collection opened up. Had it not been for encountering that collection, I never write this book. It's that simple. So well, that's why the book is dedicated to Walter and Linda Evans. And we're grateful. Um, it's fascinating that his sons also felt the need to preserve his legacy mm. in that way. And yeah, they were, oh, and it was a difficult uh, family life. Uh, Douglas ends up the patriarch of, uh, of a huge extended family, uh, four surviving adult children, three sons, one daughter. The daughter, Rosetta, was the oldest. She had seven children. Between them, they had tw he, had, uh, he and Anna, his first wife, had 21 grandchildren. Then there were some fictive kin, uh, some fictive siblings from Eastern Shore of Slavery who either adopted him or he adopted them. And always a variety of other hangers-on that were kind of always around Douglas. So he has this huge extended family. And the sons in particular never developed very successful professions. Uh, they, they really struggled, but they were, as you just said, they were so passionately dedicated to honoring and preserving the old man's life. Uh, at times you almost wonder, you know, why didn't they go off on their own more? Yeah. And actually they did. They, at, at least two of the sons went west, all the way out to Denver at one point, to Colorado to try to open up uh, businesses, uh, groceries and that sort of thing. It never worked out for them. But there was this sense that they, they, their father was the most famous abolitionist in the country, most famous African-American in the country, and they were going to somehow preserve that life. Thank God they did. But it also shows you that those sons didn't have a lot else going in their lives. And that's, that's a story I, I try to deal with in some depth in the book. It was never easy to be Frederick Douglass's son or daughter. And the daughter Rosetta made a very bad marriage uh, to this guy named Nathan Sprague. And you know, that's, uh, I think everybody agrees, that's pretty accurate. Uh, and so she ended up, she was the most educated of all of his children. Uh, and actually, for a little while, was a teacher, which was about the only profession open to women, especially black women. But then she marries this guy who was himself a fugitive slave and a Civil War soldier veteran, has seven babies in 13 years, something like mm -hmm. that. And it kind of riveted her into this uh, domestic life. And then he was a wandering soul who wasn't in there half the time. Anyway, all of this extended family was dependent on Douglas, 
And uh, again, that Evans collection was a way of, of seeing into that. Even, I'll give you one other example. Uh, there were a lot of Washington, D.C. newspapers in the 19th century, uh, several white newspapers, mainstream newspapers, at least at different times, two or three black newspapers. And by the uh, early to mid-1880s, Douglas's extended family became almost, because after he moved to Washington in 1872, they became almost like a black first family in that everything they did got into the press, mm. good, bad, and ugly. Uh, if there was a bankruptcy, it's in the press. If somebody got sued, it's in the press. Uh, you know, if there was a real estate conflict in the courts, they got caught up in it's in the press. So that's another aspect of Douglas's life that, again, without this incredible clipping collection, I, I couldn't have understood. Um, so, uh, all... All honor to Linda and Walter Evans yes, yes. for making that possible. And they are dear friends to this day, and I'm glad you asked about that because I, I always give them credit. <laughs> Thank you. So my next question is about memory and legacy. It strikes me that memory, how it is constructed, interpreted, and invoked, is a crucial theme throughout your work. In Race and Reunion, you explore the impact of the Civil War on America's collective memory. Your current book wonderfully illustrates the ways in which Frederick Douglass utilized his extraordinary powers of recollection to relay the trauma he experienced as a slave, to further the abolition cause and the black freedom struggle, as well as to provide a record of, brut of the brutality of slavery for posterity. His writing on childhood in particular is so vivid, containing details such as names and places which have been verified. Do you see Douglass's writing on the subject as a meditation on childhood trauma or his way of dealing with trauma by writing through it? In what ways did his writings on childhood, specifically on his relationship with white children he befriended in Baltimore, who he saw as natural abolitionists, help to inform his natural rights critique of slavery? Mm. Wow, that is a big but very important question. When I was writing the early chapters of the book, say the first three or four, on his youth, uh, I, I remember getting frustrated at one point in trying to understand this question of trauma. Mm. How, how does one write about that? And how, how and what do we remember about our childhood? Now, there's a lot, I mean, there are millions of words written about memory uh, as a biological process, mm. and even as a social process. But, you know, and we do tend, we know this now from cognitive science, we do tend to remember but first of all, by associations, but we do remember emotional events. Emotion is a huge part of memory. doesn't mean it's accurate. Mm -hmm. just means it sticks in some ways, and therefore trauma. So I got, I got, I remember feeling like I was in a corner and I didn't know what I was doing, and I went to the library at Yale and I checked out, I don't know, armloads of books on child psychology, oh, wow. and mem child memory, and trauma, and... I don't even to this day know how reading some of that stuff helped. Uh, some of it's in the footnotes. Mm -hmm. I tried never to put it in the text, but it did help me get my feet with this question of how is he remembering his childhood? And I think there's no question, and your question reflects the fact that I do argue this in the book, that Douglas had a traumatic childhood. He called it a childhood of extremes. He saw every brutality and he physically experienced just about every brutality yeah. that slavery could wreck onto a, a young person. He also witnessed you know, beatings of women in front of their children. He, mm. he witnessed you know, the beating of Barney, for example, in the narrative, who was the, the old man who ran the stables at the Y plantation. This, the, he saw Barney, and here he was, a seven-year-old kid, he thought Barney was this gentle, wonderful man who ran the stables. And one day, Colonel Lloyd was upset with somehow the way the horse got harnessed. And uh, he made old Barney kneel to his knees, stripped to the waist, and Colonel Lloyd just beat the dickens out of him. He saw all this. He saw Denby killed, mm -hmm. this runaway slave. Actually, he didn't witness that when he heard about it. Anyway, so... He nevertheless grows up and grows out of this. He spent 11 years of his 20 as a slave out on the Eastern Shore in this kind of rural, 
plantation and farm world slavery. And he was a, at times a field hand. Then he spends nine of those years in Baltimore. In fact, if it weren't for Baltimore, we wouldn't even know him. Baltimore and the fact that he's in an urban environment amidst a huge free black community where he meets Anna and he gets involved in churches and a debating society and all of this has everything to do with why he ever escaped. But the way he fashions that childhood is on the one hand a piece of brilliant abolitionist propaganda. Yeah. Uh, he converts his childhood into this story and it's, it's why the narrative caught on with people. That's why it sold 30,000 copies in the first five years. That's why we still read it. It is, it's a great story. It's a coming of age story of this kid who somehow survives all of this violence and humiliation and all the rest that goes with slavery and yet fashions himself, of course, as the person who defeats it. He's, he's the one who overcomes it. And he does, he escapes. He becomes Frederick Douglass. Fred Bailey becomes Frederick Douglass. But at the same time, as a biographer, you've got to try to figure out, even though you can never conclusively say, what did this leave in his soul? What did this leave in his psyche? What kinds of scars, if you want, did it leave in his mind that he had to find, to use your word, to, he had to find ways to contain, process, vent, Choose your verb. And of course, in Douglas's case, and I, I, I do argue this very directly, yeah. the fact that he became so skilled with words, so skilled as a speaker first and then as a writer, Douglas is one of those rare people who could experience this oppression, this trauma, this scarring, and yet he, he, he could vent it, if you want, in language and not by physical violence. Uh, how many other people were left with nothing but the rage in their heart and no way to express it, except, you know, as a kid made today in the streets of an American city um, by some kind of physical expression. So, uh, I do argue in the book that at times you can begin to see that rage come out of him, and I especially make the case um, with the way he, I think, is using the, his memories of slavery when suddenly the Civil War does break out and he becomes this vicious war propagandist. Mm. And what does he do? He creates the hated enemy of all time, and that hated enemy is every slaveholder in the South, and he wants them killed. In no uncertain terms, explicit language, he wants them liquidated. It's as though he had been, you know, sanctioned all of a sudden to just advocate, well, I say this in the book, to advocate the death of every Edward Covey yeah. in the South. Covey was that uh, overseer to whom he had been hired out who, who beat him uh, repeatedly uh, when he was about 17 years old, 16 years old. So, yeah, but, but on the whole memory issue, Douglas is a creature of his memory. Uh, anybody who writes that many autobiographies and just keeps writing his own story is, is sort of leaving us uh, this, this extended record of his own memory. Uh, and indeed, telling us the story he wants us to tell about him. The biographer, as you've already suggested, the biographer's job, though, is to get under and around and through that manipulative writer who's always sitting there in front of you, kind of hiding some things behind. And that's never easy. That's the biggest challenge in doing a biography of anybody like this. How do you get to the... Do you ever get to the inner recesses? Do you get to those relationships with his, his two wives, with his children, with his with his closest friends, uh, or even with his enemies and rivals. Uh, there are ways to get at that, mm. but it's always frustrating because you never feel like... And I'll tell you this, what every biographer wants and never can have, whoever you're working on, um, you want to get your subject in this, like this seminar room. You want them to sit at the end of that <laughs> table. You want to lock the door. 
hide the keys and get four hours with them. No bathroom break. <laughs> and just have at it. You know, you get to ask him all those things that he never quite told you. Every biographer wants mm. that. You're always sort of wishing for that. And of course, we don't have it. Uh, every time you want to push him on something, he just squ you know, squirms out and out the door he goes. So, um, and I have, I have a long list of those questions I would, I would push him on if I ever got him in this room or any other room, but somehow I've never managed to do that. Just <laughs> <laughs> stage a seance? Yeah, I don't know. Actually, there, there, there is at least one biographer I know of, and he's a great one, who tried something like that, believe it or not. David Levering Lewis. Tried it? Oh. Well, he didn't do a seance. <laughs> David Levering Lewis, the great uh, biographer, two-volume biography of W.E.B. Du Bois. David hired a psychiatrist. He had the psychiatrist read a lot about Du Bois. He must have fed the psychiatrist all sorts of questions, and I don't know how they prepared for it, but David went to the couch as though he was Du Bois and had this shrink, you know, analyze him. I honestly do not know how that helped David. He, <laughs> he, he publicly admitted doing this, and yet I don't know what a biographer would gain from that. It might be a... a an exercise in strange fun of some kind, but how would you, I don't know what, what kind of evidence would you call that? <laughs> I, I had a shrink analyze me as though I were no, you know. I, anyway, I didn't do that. And yeah, uh, you, you had to you had to have David Levering Lewis's sort of chutzpah and I guess prestige or something to even try that. Didn't harm but the to book. even come up with that idea. I know, yeah. Some. I hear a shrink and imagine your voice. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. I don't, I, it's the only one I know of who's ever done that. Now, maybe there are others, you know. <laughs> but I, I think it's the fantasy of, of biography. If you can only get them in a room and, and pin your person down and just, you know, get ten questions or five, even. Mm -hmm. Boy, what are the things you could learn. Um, but he just squirms away. I have a funny feeling he'd be quite evasive even if oh, he did he would. have that opportunity. He'd, oh, he'd, he'd bat the questions around. He'd, he'd answer you by not answering you. But we'd get to witness his oratorical skills. I know. It's, it'd be fun to see him... It'd be fun to see him evade. Mm. <laughs> Actually, we should get an actor and try it out or something and film it and see... Nah, it would be, it would be hokey. I think that would be fun. <laughs> It'd be fun. It'd be <laughs> if you fun. do that, definitely get me involved. <laughs> All right, you're on. Um, okay, so the next question is, um, what comes through in the book is the intensity of Douglas's fame. He was the most photographed man of the 19th century. From the accounts written by those who saw him speak, we get a sense of Douglas as a performer in possession of a commanding presence and great oratorical skill. However, from his earliest days as part of the Garrisonian movement, there's an uncomfortable dynamic at work. The image of Douglas as both a powerful black man, countering prevailing stereotypes, but also Douglas as a spectacle for public consumption. As you say in the book, he, was, he became a symbol, an exhibit of a black man. He was the ornament, the object, a former piece of property who could speak and write, who could match wits and logic with even his most determined critics. Do you think, in recounting his trauma to white audiences, that Douglas believed there was an exploitational element as public speaking? And if so, did he see it as a price worth paying for access to a platform in order to advocate for freedom and to build his public persona? Well, I think the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Uh, he, there's no question. He, well, first of all, he was a performer, even very early. Uh, um, he gets discovered as this uh, preacher when he's only 21 and 22 years old in the New Bedford, in the New Bedford AME church uh, by some abolitionists from Boston. Uh, and then, you know, in 1841, they take him out to Nantucket where he gives his first supposed public speech to white people. And, you know, he was nervous. He says he's shook in his shoes. And, and he, I'm sure he was. Um, but he became... Once they got him out on the circuit, on the anti-slavery circuit, 
this young man had had skill. Now, that's where, as as a biography, you you do go back and show, as I try to, that he came by this when he was still a slave by by discovering this book, the Columbian Orator, which was like a manual of oratory, and he used to practice it and preach from it with his band of buddies or brothers, he called them, on the Freeland farm out on the eastern shore. So he's done this before, but when he gets out on the circuit, he shows his performance chops. And the speech in particular that he did it with in those early years, 1841 to 44, was that speech they ended up calling, and he gave it countless times, the slaveholder's sermon, Mm -hmm. where he would mimic uh, a southern preacher, southern white preacher, and he'd go into the voice and the accent, and he'd stomp around the stage, and, and he'd quote those passages of the Bible, slaves, be loyal to your masters, and on and on he'd go. Um, and audiences would crack up, and audiences would cheer, and they would laugh. And there were times when he'd be out on the circuit and the abolitionists always had this uh, method they used where they would have a set of resolutions and they would speak to or to or against the resolution and sometimes he'd be you know speaking to the resolution or against it and somebody in the audience would say hey fred do the sermon you know and yeah yeah he'd break into it and he'd perform it so he was very entertaining even when he was very young he learned almost all it took time, but he learned all of those performative aspects of oratory first by reading about it, then by watching preachers in Baltimore, and then by doing it, and then by also watching these Garrisonian abolitionists. He learned a lot from Garrison himself. I mean, Garrison would start a lot of speeches by reading, you know, six verses from the Bible, citing his text, and then he'd preach on the text. Douglas learned how to do that. But he also learned how to tell stories. He was a great storyteller. And he learned how to sort of engage both in, it's, it's, part, it's, it's classic oratory. He learned how to engage an audience both mentally and physically and then even morally, you know, to go for their heart, to go for their emotion, to, to reach... The, it was so skilled at reaching the emotions of an audience in the middle of a story full of metaphor. That's what oratory was in the 19th century. It's almost lost today. Uh, no one, well, no one, for one thing, would ever give a two-hour speech today. Everyone would walk out, uh, you know, because uh, we can't stand it. Anyway, our attention span is not the same as it was in the 19th century. Oratory was performance. And he learned it as a craft, as an art. He also, I mean, another of his techniques, which is a technique of any good oratory, is all of his great speeches had a refrain that would be repeated over and over. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Uh, whether it's, uh, I mean, there, there, there are actually two or three different refrains in the famous Fourth of July speech. Mm-hmm. There's a refrain in his Freedman's Memorial speech of 1876. That's the speech of the dedication of that incredible monument of the standing Lincoln and the kneeling slave. And that, he has a refrain he uses about four times, and it's called, under his, it was, under his rule and in due time. And he repeats it, meaning emancipation came with Lincoln, under his rule and in due time. In the lynching speech, uh, at the end of his life, there's a refrain where he's, and he says it over and over, he calls the accusation of sexual abuse or assault by black men against white women a lie. He says, he says, it is a lie, I utterly refuse. He says, no, no, I'm sorry, the refrain is, I deny the lie, I utterly deny it. And he would repeat that as he would move through the cadences of the speech. Anyway, so yes, he was a performer in every sense of the word. But here's the key. He also uh, learned quite early on to be an analytical speaker. Uh, Part of that comes when he really begins to write. Um, 
But many of Douglass's greatest speeches are, are highly analytical. I, mean, I could cite many of the lynching speech, for example, which I will actually speak about today in the seminar. It is like a three-part analysis of why lynching is happening. It's a social analysis, a historical analysis, and a kind of an ethical moral analysis. All sorts of his speeches. Uh, he would try his damnedest to show that he wasn't just this orator who could blow out the lights off the top of his head with a bunch of rhetoric. He wanted to show his intellectual chops. That was very important to him. And all of his major speeches, even from before the war, all of them are in a written text uh, from the late 1840s on. Every major speech he ever did, he wrote it down first. This isn't just some, you know, spontaneous preacher. Uh, he became a writer as well as an orator. In fact, I'm convinced, you know, among the many things you can't prove, but I am convinced that Douglas is one of those people, like many of us, who didn't know what he really thought about something until he went to his desk and wrote it. You know, by writing it down, this is what I think. Um, and not, in, in the middle of a speech, surely he would break from the text, and you know, like we all do. But I mean, the great speeches are all in these amazing texts, and after the Civil War, they're all in typescript. You know, thank God. Oh, yeah. uh, although he had good handwriting, I, 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 I've never seen a word in Douglas's handwriting that I couldn't make out. Which is, okay. you know, thank God, you know, because <laughs> that's not true of everybody. Um, so yeah. Uh, Performer, without a, without a doubt, uh, and it's it's the centerpiece of his fame, uh, because it became a, I, I say this in the book it became a kind of an American wonder, you know, to see Douglas speak. Seriously, I mean, uh, and I speculate in the book. I can't prove this at all, but it's it's likely more people heard Frederick Douglass speak than anyone else in the nineteenth century. Uh, you know, uh, there were other great orators, plenty of them, but nobody who traveled as much as he did, gave as many thousand speeches as he did, year after year, day after day. Um, so the idea of seeing Douglas, which meant speaking, uh, was a phenomenon. And later, in, late in his life, he gets letters, he gets correspondence, people will write this up in newspapers, you know, the day I saw Douglas. I mean, I don't know what the equivalent of that would be today, you know, uh, I don't know, the first time I saw Beyonce sing or something, <laughs> I, I don't know. I was actually just thinking that. Well, yeah, right, well that might be it now, I don't know, or yeah. used to be the, I don't know, the night I saw Michael Jordan score 50 or something, I don't know. Um, also, Du Bois does this as well, doesn't he? So he writes yeah. about the time that he saw Douglas, and he, he managed to actually. And I think I, I think I verified that the one time he would have. That's what Du Bois says in his mm -hmm. eulogy speech. The first and only time I saw Douglas, and I, I, I figured it out that it was in Tremont Temple, in Boston, in uh, the early summer of 1892, which was just before Du Bois mm -hmm. went to Berlin, because uh, it could have been the only time he would have seen him. Uh, so, yeah. So again, they're in Du Bois' own voice, you know. Mm. The first and only time yeah. I saw Douglas, it was... And Douglas had that kind of, well, by, particularly by later in his life, he had that kind of iconic, um, you know, we, we use the word celebrity today. They didn't really use that word in the mm. 19th century. They used the word fame. But he had that iconic kind of quality, meaning, presence, even among people who hated him, who didn't like him. You know, he was this um, black abolitionist who was always seemingly so threatening. Um, uh, yeah, and he had a serious problem with fame and all the perils that can go with that. Um, you know, he, couldn't, he couldn't go anywhere without being recognized. Which, well, part of, and actually, he cultivated that. I was going to say, he seems like he, he loves cultivated. it. <laughs> you suggested that yeah. was your question. I mean, yeah. all these photographs are not just because the photographers wanted it. And they did. They, everywhere he went, there was some photographer usually wanted him to sit. But he wanted to do these photographs. 
And it shows in the way he presented himself, the way he, you know, said, look at me. I am an intelligent, well-dressed black man who may be just as smart as any of you. Uh, I have education. I have, well, self-education, but um, those photographs are partly self-fashioned. Yeah, and I think the first one's from 1841, right? So he does this quite early early on. Very early. It's amazing how early he gets photographed, and then over and over and over. And thanks to the great work of the three people who edited this book, Picturing Douglas, two of the Brits, uh, Zoe Trod and Celeste Bernier, we have this now extraordinary um, book and collection of all the extant Douglas photos. Although a couple more have even been found since <laughs> that was published. Yeah, there are a couple. Um, they're all over the place in, in, the, in, in the most unusual places they've been found, in museums, in private collections. Uh, yeah, he was uh, not only the most photographed, but possibly the most widely traveled and listened to American voice. Um, and of course he's utterly self-conscious of that and it's why these lecture tours continue for him way into old age, until the last year of his life. Although there were many reasons for that, not least of which was he needed the money to support that big extended family and the property that he owned in Washington and the other property that he started (laughs) buying. Uh, Douglas and his sons tried to buy up real estate that their idea of best kind of investment then as it is now for some mm-hmm. people. But they got badly hurt in the Panic of 1893 on some of their real estate possessions. Anyway, uh, yeah, the performer. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so Douglas lived a long life. He was born in 1818 and he died in 1895. He also lived a very visible public life, as we've discussed, traveling tirelessly around the country and abroad. Even after his escape from slavery, he was subject to numerous assaults. It's Mm -hmm. just incredible. Um, And yet he lived to the ripe old age of 77. I suppose my question is, why wasn't Douglas assassinated? (laughs) Uh, I like that question. I've been asked that before. It's, It's a very fair question. Given the sheer scale of hostility to abolitionists early on, and as you know from reading it, he does get attacked many times, whether that's being thrown off a Jim Crow car and a train or sitting in the white car of a train or uh, mobs attacking as they did in Indiana once where he got into this terrible fisticuffs and broke his wrist and believed he would have been killed if he hadn't been dragged out of there by uh, some abolitionist friends. Uh, and then the threats. There are letters where he gets death threats. Um, one answer to that is that, by and large, Americans didn't carry guns. Oh, right. In the 19th <laughs> yeah. century. I mean, out in rural areas, you'd have hunting rifles, for sure. But people didn't just carry guns to events like this. They carried brick bats and egg, rotten eggs and I mean, he had tomatoes mm-hmm. thrown at him, et cetera, et cetera. He once had a, in fact, he once had a small live pig thrown at him. <laughs> there must have been yeah. some symbolism to that. He was in a church and they threw a pig up on the altar. Um, unlike today, when guns are you know, so ubiquitous, at least in American society, um, they weren't in the 19th century. So attacked, yes, physically, attacked by a mob in mm. December 1860 in uh, Boston, Tremont Temple again, where they were trying to commemorate the hanging of John Brown. It was in the midst of the secession crisis. Mm. Um, a mob just swarmed the hall and started a, you know, a, a brawl. And Douglas had to fight his way out of back, our side door. Mm. Um, so it is remarkable that he wasn't even more uh, severely injured, mm-hmm. although he did have this broken wrist that he always had trouble with. Um, but yeah, and of course there was one abolitionist famously uh, assassinated, uh, Elijah Lovejoy, in 1837 out in Alton, Illinois. He was indeed shot right in front of the 
building in which he kept his newspaper, William Lloyd Garrison was dragged through the streets of Boston in the 1830s and nearly killed by a mob. Um, you know, and he used to get warnings from close friends, you know, Frederick, don't go south. This is even after the war, or during the war, don't, don't, don't go south. You are a marked man, they'll, they'll kill you. Uh, now, he did not go into the South until after the Civil War. But later on, he made speaking tours of the Deep South. He went to Georgia, South Carolina, Florida on one. He went to Georgia, Alabama on another. He went to Tennessee, uh, I don't know, several times. Uh, he went west. He went all the way to Colorado at one point. So, although he'd been attacked by mobs in the North, too. Um, it is an interesting. It is an interesting fact, though, that he survived all through. Uh, but I'll say one last thing about that. Early on in the 1840s, when he's you know, taken in by the Garrisonians and he's sponsored by them out on the lecture circuit, one of the techniques of the Garrisonians and of most radical abolitionists was, in their meetings and in their oratory, was to provoke an audience. The point was to provoke your audience. To, to stimulate some kind of hostility, not only to get them to think, but it became sort of a badge of honor if they attacked you. Oh, wow. Well, that's dangerous, because what are they attacking with? You know, bricks or worse. Uh, but getting hostility out of an audience was part of the point. So you got to factor that in here, too. They were kind of seeking this hostility. Uh, and it had an even religious aspect to it, you know, for, for many of them. It was doing God's work. It was being God's witness. It was making testimony. And you hadn't made a good testimony unless, unless the, the devil's agents pushed back, <laughs> so to speak. So that was, that was part of the atmosphere as well. Uh, and then when, when an audience did attack back, now you had them. You know, you had this, you, you had this back and forth, you had this tit for tat. And, and Douglas liked that, uh, even though it was dangerous. That's great, thank you. Um, so Douglas was both a fierce critic of the U.S., but also a great admirer of the Declaration of Independence. He stood in opposition to those who advocated that black Americans return to Africa in the aftermath of the Civil War, instead arguing that blacks had a right to live in the U.S. as citizens with the accompanying rights. Do you think that Douglas genuinely believed in American exceptionalism, or was this primarily a rhetorical tool to push for greater inclusion for African Americans? Uh, actually, I think it's both. He did believe in it. He, he, he never stopped, even in the darkest moments of, say, the late 1850s, believing in the essential creeds of the Declaration, uh, the four first principles. He, he likened the principles of the Declaration of Independence to like precious ore in the, in the ground that belonged to everyone. Um, they were natural rights, and he was a great proponent of the, you know, the natural rights tradition, especially as it grew out of the Enlightenment. Uh, American exceptionalism, yes, in the sense that you had to look hard in the world in the world he knew, in the world he understood, other than Great Britain, which was still a monarchy, um, he had to look far and wide to find anything resembling a real republic. Even after 1848 in Europe, those republics mostly failed. Uh, they tried, revolution after revolution. Um, the problem was the way in which slavery, of course, poisoned the American Republic. And that was his subject. It's the subject of the 4th of July speech. Mm. It's the subject of so many of those editorials he writes in the 1850s. It's still his subject at the time of the Civil War. This is a republic that has the right creeds. It's just been violating them over and over and over in the worst possible ways. Um, so what you do have in Frederick Douglass, and it is not always easy to know which one you're encountering, is this ferocious critic of the United States, sometimes just this brutal critic. You know, he comes back from England in 1847 saying things like, I have no country. I hate my country. My country disowns me, I disown it. Uh, and one, uh, one uh, newspaper reporter called him a demagogue in black. You know? And some of the other abolitionists even asked him to tone it down. You know? Then at other times, you dip into Douglas in the 
say, in the eight, late 1860s, after the war, the height of Reconstruction, you read Douglas, and he's a super patriot. Mm. And he actually was. He believes the United States had truly remade itself out of the blood sacrifice of the war. 14th Amendment is passed. Reconstruction Acts are passed. And he can fashion that, that incredible speech in 1867 that he called the Composite Nation, mm. which was this dream, this vision, which, you know, we, I mean, it reads like a, a, a curriculum guide for multiculturalism. In the yeah, age. it's like post-racial society. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, this, it's, this, it's this multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multi-racial society all living under equality before law somewhere there in the future, but America now has a chance to be that. He never gave that speech after the early 1870s, by the way, because Reconstruction begins to start falling apart. But so it just it depends on when and where you uh, step in to Douglas's rhetoric. But the answer really is he's both. He is a ferocious critic of his own society, even after the war, and especially later on in the 18 late 80s and into the 90s. Um, at the same time. He's what I just chose to call a kind of radical patriot. Yeah, both. <laughs> and he's not alone in that. You know, there are others who are there with him. And we've known a lot of radical patriots through American history who constantly, you know, serve as our critics from within, demanding that we actually live up to what we say. Um, and we have a great need again for radical patriots. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and just to end, as is our custom on the American History Seminar podcast, with the final question, mm-hmm. what is your favorite album? My favorite album? Oh, my God. Oh, you're probably going to laugh at me. I don't get I two. I have to have one. I, can't, I don't get two, huh? We can let that slide. Oh. We well, it's a little old-fashioned, but one of them would be Springsteen's Greatest Hits. And the other would probably be Sweet Honey and the Rocks, uh, Spirituals, especially the one that has Balm and Gilead on it, oh, wow. which is my favorite hymn of all time. Uh, so, it, although I'd have to have a Motown record in there too, because I grew up with Motown. I grew up in Michigan. I grew up in Flint. And, oh wow! You know, and uh, so I don't know. Martha and the Vandellas doing Dancing in the Streets might have been. <laughs> Might have been. Such an eclectic so that's, mix. I know it is, yeah. I know it is, but that's the way we grew up with music. But Springsteen's greatest hits would be right up there. Uh, but the spirit, uh, Sweet Honey and the Rocks version of Balm and Gilead is my favorite. And um, I'll leave it there. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Blight. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you.